This podcast is sponsored by Media First, who design and deliver bespoke media, message development, presentations and crisis communications training. Find out more by visiting mediafirst.co.uk. Hello, welcome to the Media Landscape. I'm Julia Bell. And in this penultimate episode of the series, I'll be taking you through the last week's news and preparing you for what's ahead. Today, we'll discuss the resignation of the Met Police Commissioner, Cressida Dick, and why, even though there have been many calls for her to resign, the way that it's all unfolded may not be a massive help in the Met's efforts to restore public faith. Plus, we'll look at Ben and Jerry's and whether their overtly political social media presence is a blessing or a curse to their parent company, Unilever. Sports broadcaster Tom Clayton dropped by again this week to be our journo on the go. And he talked me through this really uncomfortable story where videos featuring West Ham football club player Kurt Zuma hitting his pet cat went viral. And in fact, the level of discomfort around this story is probably worth me offering a trigger warning. Please do proceed with caution because we'll be unpacking that story in more detail later in the episode. So this week, the story surrounding Met Police Commissioner Cressida Dick's resignation is what kind of conquered the headlines. And she cited the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's lack of faith in her leadership as the reason why. It is quite clear that the mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in my leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service for me to continue as commissioner. He has left me no choice but to step aside. The really interesting part of this is that just hours, literally hours before she resigned, Cressida Dick said in an interview with BBC London that she had absolutely no intention of stepping down. What actually happened in the space of a day is the question. Well, the catalyst appears to be that the mayor asked for a concrete plan from Cressida Dick to deal with the cultural issues within the Met that were particularly highlighted by this investigation that was into the conduct of officers at Charing Cross Police Station. That report identified racism, misogyny, bullying, homophobia and harassment. And so Dick put forward a plan, but the mayor indicated he wasn't satisfied with it. And so instead of creating creating a new one, she saw that as a sign of no faith and decided to quit the role. And even though there have been many calls for Dick to stand down um, as a measure to regain the public's trust for the Met after a rocky and sort of scandal-ridden few years with her at the top, of course it's not quite the ideal situation to have the chief leave with nobody set up to replace her. That level of uncertainty definitely doesn't solve the problem of you know, gaining public trust. And to make matters worse on that front, actually, I remember at the time that Dick's contract was renewed, it was in the autumn of 2021, there was this common understanding that the Mayor of London and the Home Secretary, who both have to appoint, you know, the the Met Commissioner, they would have actually quite liked to have replaced her since, of course, like I say, she was surrounded by all of these scandals to do with the Met. But the reason that she wasn't replaced was because there simply wasn't an appropriate successor that everyone could agree on. It seemed those involved in appointing a new Met chief weren't satisfied with the talent pool available. And so does that mean that we are inevitably going to end up with somebody taking over that the mayor and or the Home Secretary aren't particularly over the moon with? That is a surefire way to squander public trust in the Met all over again. And put it this way, even if 
Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Sadiq Khan come out in a few days and they mutually sing the praises of a new successor, surely we'll all be thinking, right, well, if they're so perfect for the role, why didn't you appoint them back in autumn instead of extending Cressida Dick's contract? So I'm fearful that whoever takes on this new role will immediately be on the back foot. In brand news, the ice cream company Ben & Jerry's has faced criticism from its own parent company, Unilever, after it tweeted some very direct political commentary on the escalating tension between Russia and the Ukraine. Ben & Jerry's tweet, which was posted on the 4th of February, said, quote, We call on President Biden to de-escalate tensions and work for peace rather than prepare for war. Sending thousands more US troops to Europe in response to Russia's threats against Ukraine only fans the flame of war. Now, seeing that, I knew that that would put Unilever in a really awkward position because literally days before, one of Unilever's investors, um, Terry Smith, had criticised Unilever for bending to the will of its brands that were, quote, obsessed with talking about social issues and climate change rather than focusing on what he calls their business credentials. So when the Unilever chief executive was inevitably asked to respond to that this week, he said, quote, Ben & Jerry's is a great brand. Most of the time, they get it right. But on subjects where Unilever brands don't have expertise or credibility, it's best to stay out of the debate. So two opposing approaches under one umbrella. You know, it's never an, it's never an ideal look. But the difficulty that Unilever has Um, is that when it acquired Ben & Jerry's, it was in the year 2000, that agreement stated that Ben & Jerry's absolutely maintains its own independent board of directors who would be free to share their stance on cultural issues and on political debates. And that is exactly what they've done. You may remember last summer, Ben & Jerry's um, stopped selling their products in occupied territories of Palestine. And that was a move which was much like the issue at hand. It was really divisive. And frankly, I don't see them stopping. You know, even if Unilever's advice is to uh, to butt out of areas which they, quote, lack expertise, we've talked plenty of times on this podcast about the sort of mounting pressure on brands from the public to take a lead on big issues like this, especially when trust in the government is low, as it currently is. And Ben & Jerry's is a bit of a pioneer in this regard, which seems to go down really well with the likes of you know Gen Z and millennial consumers particularly who increasingly insist that they do take you know a brand's cultural ethos into account when they shop and since Ben & Jerry's has experienced 9% growth i think we'll continue to see Unilever effectively let Ben & Jerry's be Ben & Jerry's maybe put out vaguely critical statements and perhaps try to just manage the expectations of investors behind the scenes. Finally, just another quick brand story before our journal on the go. Um, I saw that the CEO of co-op supermarkets, Jo Whitfield, was in the news this week as she's opted to take four months unpaid leave in order to help her two sons revise for their upcoming exams. Now, on the face of it, this is a great thing right? You know, exams are really stressful for teenagers at the best of times. Throw in the last couple of years, the pandemic and this sort of chaotic few years of exam regulation. And I just think it's quite nice to see a high profile person promote the importance of um, prioritising their family and, and maybe kind of avoiding 
playing up to this burnout culture that we do see a lot of. However, I'm just kind of cautious about this because I can't escape the feeling that many of co-op's employees will be similar. There'll be parents of children a similar age and they would potentially love to do something similar. And while, yes, co-op have said that the opportunity is absolutely available for anybody uh, if they want to take unpaid leave of absence, I do wonder how the likes of, say, the shop floor staff actually feel when they read that because of course they're not earning anything close to the 1.4 million pound salary that Whitfield earned in 2020 so yes stating that the option is there shows that Whitfield isn't necessarily getting special treatment per se but it is perhaps a little reductive and unrealistic and perhaps even tokenistic to simply say oh yeah anyone can do it as if they can afford it um so if I were co-op I would definitely be at least preparing for questions about how lower ranking employees can achieve such an enviable sense of work-life balance. Okay, on to our journal on the go segment with Tom Clayton. Again, I'll mention that trigger warning since we will be talking about this extremely controversial issue of West Ham footballer Kurt Zuma featuring in a viral video where he is slapping and kicking his pet cat across the floor. Uh, in a statement, Zuma said, quote, I want to apologise for my actions. There are no excuses for my behaviour, which I sincerely regret. I would like to assure everyone that our two cats are perfectly fine and healthy. On this quite disturbing topic, I started by asking Tom what West Ham Football Club have done in response to the distress that's been caused by these videos. Well, it was actually a very slow start from West Ham. You know, they they mentioned that they were going to investigate it internally. And then we didn't really know what was going to come from that because they were playing that night. They were playing in the Premier League against Watford. And we thought, you know, the natural thing to do would be to drop you know, the person who is at the most controversial stage probably in his career so far. Mm. But they decided to they decided to go ahead and play him. You know, David Moyes, the manager, was very forward in his interviews with all of the media organisations. He said, look, I'm here to win football matches and, you know, I have to make a footballing decision. And yes, OK, I understand the off-field issues at the moment, but... At the end of the day, West Ham are in a position where they are chasing playing in the Champions League, potentially for the first time in a long, long time. Did they beat Watford when they put him in on that night? Yes, 1-0. So do you think that won fans around a little bit, that like perhaps he could have been a catalyst if they'd taken him out, it would have messed up the flow of things? Possibly. I, I mean, there was criticism on the night. You know, there were some boos, there, there were clear boos from the Watford fans in the London Stadium. And there was some there were some boosts from the other fans, but I remember watching that game sitting more out of interest to see what happened. And to be honest, as the night went on, the boos got quieter and quieter. They didn't die out completely. But you know, at the start of the game, it was very raucous, everyone booing as soon as he got the ball and everything he did and as wow. soon as he moved around the pitch. But then actually, as the game kind of developed, people kind of lost interest a little bit and they were just kind of more focused on. Watford trying to get a result at a big team because Watford themselves are in a bad position in terms of relegation. So then, oh, yes, OK, they have a job to do in terms of holding Zuma to account, but they also want to see their football team win. And since then, actually, there have been some resolutions from the club. They find him the maximum possible for an issue such as this. So they find him £250,000, we think, 
is the maximum amount they could have charged him. And they're also donating two weeks worth of his wage to an animal charity. So they are, the club have addressed it. Um, but you sort of think that was that enough? Yeah. Cause you know, I remember um, the story about the teacher that was sacked um, for kicking a horse and that happened in January and then you hear about Zuma losing two weeks' wages, which to a footballer, by most, if not all accounts, is not really going to hit him at all. It's not going to dent him at all financially. So do you think there's different rules for footballers compared to the rest of us? I don't think it's a case of different rules for footballers compared to everyone else. I think we're actually more looking at different kinds of people. Because you look at a teacher, for example, in the case that you just mentioned, you know, they are people who directly influence children. They are essentially carers and guardians during the daytime of these children. The difference is here, yes, okay, footballers, we are, we do see them as role models, but in actual fact, they contribute what they can to the society, but their job is to play football. Now, yes, it does reflect off the pitch. There is a um, an ongoing investigation with the RSPCA, uh, a complaint's been made to the French courts as well. They recently passed legislation that if someone who is a French citizen is found guilty of animal abuse, even if they're living in a foreign country, they can be jailed for up to four years. So this is certainly not done. And this could really have very serious ramifications. Wow. I, so I kind of get your point insofar as teachers, arguably their primary purpose is to rear the future generations and to influence them positively. Footballers, while they are a massive influence, and in fact, Tom, you and I have talked about how disproportionate their influence can be on politics, on public health, everything. You would argue that their primary purpose is to play football, and that's what the club are usually going to prioritise. Yeah, and you've got to understand that in football, it's not just about who's playing for your team, you've got to consider that these are there are football fans at West Ham who haven't played European football for a long, long, long time. But the saving grace for them this year is that they're in the knockout stages of the Europa League. And they're also in a position where they're chasing a berth in the Champions League next year, which is the ultimate football competition in European football. Yeah. So this isn't just about money. This isn't just about performances on the pitch. This is the status for West Ham mm. fans to be able to talk among, you know, because there'll be West Ham fans who spend time with Manchester United fans and Chelsea fans who've played in European football in the Champions League and won the Champions League for years and years and years. And they've yeah. never been able to be part of that conversation. And they're finally in a position to do that. So I think, I don't know if they're more willing to be able to let something like this slide, but I think they're more willing to look the other direction. Thank you to Tom for that and thank you for listening. That is all from me for this week. I'll be bringing you one last episode of the series next week. So you must tell us what you thought of the Media Landscape podcast. Ways to contact us uh, with those thoughts and links to our websites are discoverable in the episode description. The Media Landscape is produced by 37, which is a journalist-led content creation agency. We help our clients tell their stories in a way that wins hearts and minds. You can find out more by visiting 37.agency. This podcast is sponsored by Media First, who design and deliver bespoke media, message development, presentations and crisis communications training. 
Find out more by visiting mediafirst.co.uk. That's spelled out media, F-I-R-S-T, dot co, dot U-K.